Welcome to another episode of Fresh Pulp Magazine's Dark Matters Podcast. I am Jay Austin Yoshino. I am your host and I am the editor-in-chief of Fresh Pulp Magazine. This is my talented and um, tireless, relentless co-host, Marguerite Hill. She is the co-founder and executive director of Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. They are also a co-sponsor of this podcast. So welcome, everyone. I also want to take this opportunity to point everyone to Muslim Arc's good work. They are doing some fantastic things. Please go check out their um, their website, check out their Twitter and their Instagram. Um, you know, contribute if you can. Any little amount helps. Um, they do some anti-racism collab, um, anti-racism uh, competency training, and it rocks. Um, everybody needs a little bit, at least a little bit of that. Probably a lot. Um, also, you know, go check out our tip button. You know, we have a wish list um, now up on on the website. Plus, we have um, uh, a tip button on on Twitter. That kind of thing helps us get our wish list. Helps us do book reviews. Helps us pay for this podcast because it's not free to produce this. So, welcome everyone. Welcome and welcome, Marguerite. You've been like off in the deep woods with your with your acolytes. So, um, I don't know if that's actually where you've been, but we have, we haven't talked for a minute. So, it's good to see you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was in um, in Santa Rosa um, Mountains, sort of like between like San Francisco and Santa Cruz, um, and largely offline. But there there was a lodge where we could get some work done. So, but it was it was really great to be offline and not able to use my phone and scroll doom scroll um, before going to bed, which I like to do. Right. You Oh, you didn't have phone access. Yeah, no, I didn't. So there was no Wi-Fi, no, you know, no phone, except for limited times. So it was, you know, my daughter was like, her phone was off, like she was off all week. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty, um, that sounds pretty serene. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, it, but that's cool. So welcome back. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to have to throw you right into it. Um, but so we're going to do a science roundup first. Um, and I think we're going to dedicate this entire week to this entire science roundup this week to the recent ruling, um, Henrietta Lacks, uh, descendants, uh, it has been ruled by Thermo Fisher have to pay them money because they can, they continued to profit from the, uh, the Gila immortal cell line from, from Henrietta Lacks after it had been determined that they were those cells were basically stolen so um just a little bit of background they did bring a lawsuit previously against johns hopkins and uh, you know and and a, and a bunch of other people and basically they were not initially given anything they were not awarded any money um citing that you know it was basically public domain or some garbage like that um but it was also decided that that there could be no further use of it without consent or profit I'm, I'm still muddy on the details um but essentially that's this that's what this lawsuit is thermo fisher continued using it and they were like we're suing you and they won and that that was they were awarded i think tuesday which was actually on her birthday i think too wasn't it sorry yeah that i mean it's um i saw a bit of the news while i was in the mountains i wasn't able to read as closely so just get catching up this weekend i know there's a movie about it 
Um, but you know, like it's not just, I mean, for me, it's obviously like the, the injustice of her family who were denied medical treatment. Um, but the exploitation, right. Of, um, the medical, not just the medical apartheid, but the medical experimentation on black women and, um, you know, like the fact that her, her cells, right, like this has been used for the treatment of so many people that billions of dollars um, have been made off of her cells and no compensation to the family um, and that they had to fight so hard. You know, it's come this long before um, they had this ruling. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's... Um, and, and, and let's be clear about, you know, I mean, medical apartheid, which span, it, it runs the gamut when it comes to African-Americans. I mean, um, obviously the, the, um, you know, you had the experiments in, in Tuskegee and then, um, you had, you know, J. Marion Sims who experimented on black women, uh, so that, um, he could determine the nature and, and, and causes of fistulas, but he, he operated on black women with the assertion or understanding at that time that they didn't, that, that black women didn't feel pain the same way that white women did. So he operated on them without repeatedly experimented on them without, you know, anesthetic. Um, but I also want to mention really quickly about this case, this case, like what is a HeLa cell? What is an immortal cell line? And basically an immortal cell is essentially a cell that continues to, to propagate even after it's been harvested. So, you know, it should die, but it doesn't. And they harvested this cell from her, uh, was it in the fifties? I think that they, that they harvested from her, but they harvested from her at, at Johns Hopkins because she, um, she had a, um, not a cyst, but like a, a fibroid or something that they harvested it from. She was having problems, um, uh, with a growth and it turned out later on that they used that cell to pretty much a massive number, like trillions of dollars of medical advancements have been made off of this one cell harvest. So, and she was not compensated and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not she's entitled to it because it's like a happenstance, right? Like, Oh, we found this, whatever is selling this one person, but doesn't mean we've got to give it to give her money for it. And that's garbage. But anyway, you know, my, so I just wanted to, excuse me. I just wanted to tell people what the cell was and why it's important. Yeah. I mean, I'm like in, um, AP news, you know, they talk about, how there's just countless medical and scientific innovations from the polio vaccine to genetic map mapping um, COVID-19 vaccines. And I mean, just thinking about, I mean, the fact that these cells continuously grow and they're identical, right? Which allows so much. So it's like that um, it's, you know, it was the suffering of this woman Right. And and that they're not paying for something that is like, you know, an unlocked secret. And, you know, like it's it's just, um, you know, like and, and even with the topic that we're actually talking about empire. Right. And the cloning. So it's just like there's just something very um, like what had happened to her family and the, the harvesting of her cells and the reproduction of that does feel very um like it's very sci-fi, like it's very um, dystopian, dystopian in, in, in the outcome 
of that. And then when you think about all the racists, right, like during this time when, I mean, she died in a segregated hospital, but yet all these racist white people benefit from, from her, you know, and that's just, you know, just really speaks to that. But I wanted to talk about this kind of like the idea of like black women not feeling the same type of pain, um, which still exists in, in medical literature, like in medical training. Um, and then that myth of like, okay, black women as superheroes and, and, and it's actually okay to take um, parts of our bodies, parts of our, you know, our intellectual productions and to build off of that without compensating. And it's like, thank you, you know, next. So um, that when we, even when we're saying the, these kind of immortal cells, um, I mean, I, I am, you know, in some ways it, it, it causes me some discomfort because there is this idea of black women being magic and being um, not suffering the same pain or just assume that like we can take that amount of pain that the family through like those constant reminders like in their loss, right? And in that generational trauma of, of a black woman who died in a segregated hospital um, that um, all these innovations have been built off of her and that they had to fight so hard. I mean, these are companies with tons of money, so much money for lawyers. And, and through, through many years, whether it's medical malpractice, um, the, that black families, including my own, were not able to get just compensation for malpractice or, um, you know, exploitation. That is a that is a an excellent point. I, I want to 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 build that out a little bit because you're right. And, uh, I did. I remember seeing on on Twitter not too long ago that the there's a textbook that said that um, that black people actually don't feel as much pain as and this is a this is like a recent textbook and I was shocked by this. The other interesting thing is is that um, is that the instance, for example, of of um, uh, what is it? Um, child childbirth death during childbirth for black women is like five times what's the word of it? it's like it's like child mortality not child mortality but basically during the process of giving birth black women are five times more likely to die and there was this con there was this big uproar this big pushback from the from from the medical establishment and from you know right wingers and everybody else saying no that's because of poverty and whatever no actually that study controlled for um for for socioeconomic factors, which, by the way, it's absolutely ridiculous to insinuate, to imply that because someone is poor, right, that they deserve to die in during childbirth, right? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, so the black women, you know, of a uh, of the middle class, which was what they controlled for, as compared to same hospital level, same income, same everything, black women still died at a rate five times, and the really shocking part about that is that that statistic appears to be global, right? It's not just in America, it's everywhere, which is, it says something about what, what you were saying about this belief that, oh, she can take it. And, oh, it's, yeah, she's, she's exaggerating the pain and, and whatnot. It's absolutely deplorable that medical establishment is still like that medical apartheid, as you put it. 
Definitely. I mean, it's, you know, you have one like the bias, but when you have that explicit bias being reproduced around like how they understand black pain or, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, like I've, I've heard of people being denied um, pain medication, being told like they're, they're going to misuse it. And, um, you know, so, but there's also that implicit thing, you know, the implicit idea of black women being able to withstand things because of that, you know, because of our history, right, of, of being denied that is like, or like, oh, yeah, you know, she can overcome that she can push through the pain, because that's what, you know, her people have been through. And they're just very resilient people, very spiritual, you know, like right. the soul of black folks. So, so that's the kind of thing. And, and that even when we're, um, you know, even for ourselves, like we may buy into that myth that that it's oh, it's perfectly okay for us to to suffer because that's what it means to be to survive. That that we have to like push through and and um, not ask for help or not ask for treatment or alleviating that um, alleviating the pain. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you know, adding to that also, I think that there is this dynamic that exists, particularly in the United States, where black women have have had to power through and have had to sort of hunker down. They've had to, right? Because the support services, the support communities were not available. And I think that 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 is often used as a justification for denying those communities basic services, denying those communities, mental health services, denying those communities, different types of support. It's like, oh yeah, they're fine. Or, oh yeah, they still manage to whatever. Like, oh, you know what? Five times, five times the, the, the mortality rate. That's all right. There's plenty more where they came from. This really, really dehumanizing um, dynamic at the heart of that. And I, I think that it also, it, it, it's, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a holdover from obviously slavery, right? Um, because the whole, the whole part of the whole reason of, of slavery was, Hey, you know what, let's get some black folks who are used to these, these crazy equatorial temperatures that will be able to work in the heat for like long periods of time. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's where that kind of comes from and Jim Crow, obviously they, you know, it's, it persisted through Jim Crow era. Yeah. I mean, and even the, the idea of de dehumanization could also be in the, um, it is in the making someone a saint, right? Like, so the dehumanization yeah. is like, oh yeah, like this person is a superhero or this person is, is a saint. Like they are, they, they have that ability. They have that strength. They have all this resilience. And so it is, um, it is just, it's, it's not just in like, this person is less than human, but this person is more than human. They're tapped into some, spiritual well that none of us you know that like that that um magical more negro. material people yeah the magical negro and and right. that can actually be in the canonization of black women until they are decanonized for being human being and just as corruptible in power as anybody else it's like then the backlash could be really really harsh you know like i mean it'll be very swift as we're seeing today in today's headlines, this you know, or this this week's headlines, right? With, um, with another popular figure, right? Yes, yes, 
someone who had yes and ooh, that's that's an episode unto itself um yes <laughs> I, and I, I agree so it's like it, it's it, and the thing is that they did that with obama right they held mm -hmm. obama up as this person who was going to deliver us into a post-racial america and then and i and we knew this was going to happen like i actually went into a a starbucks the day after he the day after the elections right the day that they announced it that he won and i picked up a newspaper i literally took like filmed myself doing this because i wanted to get people's reactions like around me and i was like my god barack obama won i yelled really loud and i was like finally racism is over right and by the way this was in like northern virginia where it's like uber white right and people were like really uncomfortable but the, the point that i was making though when i did that was that they 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 do these performative measures in order to sort of indicate to them to everyone that they don't want to talk about it anymore. Like, okay, you got Obama, and now you got this saint, and you got this person who's been canonized, so we can move past all the to talk about you know you know races. So, um, and so I feel like they do that, like, intentionally to sort of distract you from the fact that they're still racist. Yeah, or when they like that one person, they're like, yeah, like you know, I'm. I'm not a racist. I got this black friend, you know, I invite her over for dinner and, and, right. and she likes me and I like her, you know, so that's, <laughs> you know, like you become this like evidence of, of, of that, um, you know, of, of not being racist and, and, you know, so, I mean, we have that, but it's also like holding up, like, I really admire and respect this right. super resilient black person that was able to do some amazing things despite, um, all the obstacles. So I don't know what you know, I would have I mean, done we have if I were in your place. <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly, know what I would have done. Yeah. Oh my God, you were so powerful, like black girl magic. I don't know what I would have done. Like if I were in your shoes, like if I didn't have all my privilege and stuff, like it's weird how it's kind of, it's like simultaneously a flex and like a ding. It's like, all right, man, just stop. Like, you know, Yeah. so, and I've had people come to me and be like, what can, what can we do to help? And it's like, you can listen to me once I answer this question for the last damn time. That's what you can do, right? You can read. Here's a list. Like, go to this website. Like, yeah. you know, give me five thousand yeah. dollars anyway. Um, so yeah, so so the, the, the thing that I find particularly egregious about this too, by the way, is the fact that that the terms and I and I if the terms were set forth by the by the Lax family of keeping the settlement um, private, I could understand. But I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that the that that oftentimes the the the, the transgressor is the one that names those terms because they mm -hmm. they don't want to be seen they, because they know they know if they were being if they were being magnanimous and they were being just they would not hide it right. They were like we're going to give these people like twelve million dollars right despite the fact that we made trillions off of these cells trillions. Right. Like, I don't think people understand even mRNA vaccine technology came from the HeLa cell. Right. So there are all of yeah. these medical advancements that have come from this one cell, this one person's cell. So anyway, so I, that, that part kind of bugs me a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I saw that and it's, you know, I mean, yeah, like a lot of times they set the terms right of of what's going to happen and when you have like you know like the the person who's impacted the um is just like the plaintiff and it's like you you just kind of are 
only able to like get what you get, you know? And it's like, how long can you carry on that fight before you say like, okay, we got something out of that. But, you know, they still want to say like, oh yeah, you know, back in the day we were, you know, we, we did something wrong, but like that, this is not like people aren't really profiting. I mean, they, they, they had some kind of crummy statement. I'm just yeah, trying it was. to, um, Oh, you were looking for it. Yeah. It was just like, yeah, I'm looking for the state. Like, what did they say? Um, but I was just like, okay. Um, the, um, like what was their kind of defense of it. Um, but it's like, it's just so, I mean, it's just really, just really incredible. Um, around like how this played out and that they fought it you know i mean that they did fight it and so it is yeah. you know well, like when that, we, you know we're speaking on reparations right and the fact that they were just yes. like um you know in this case it's like this is this is why reparations matters um yes absolutely and so but also they, were, they yeah. have to stop doing it mm -hmm. for reparations to be effective this systemic racist garbage has to stop. Like if they're still doing it, but they're giving us like money and access to like loans and access to like colleges, mm -hmm. it's it's it, it's still ham. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm -hmm. part for me. For me, part of reparations is cessation of hostilities. Yeah. So here's like the th yeah in their statement, Johns Hopkins. Um, said they reviewed all the interactions with Lax and her family um, after the book, and then they acknowledged an ethical responsibility. Their statement said that they um, the medical system has never sold or profited from the discovery and distribution of HeLa cells and does not own the rights to this HeLa cell line. Which is crazy, which is, which is I mean, a bald-faced lie, right? It's you can see it all around you how they profited from it. It's all around you. As I said, mRNA vaccines is a bunch of stuff. So that's patently false. I mean, if you believe that, then you may as well believe in Santa Claus because that's crazy. Yeah. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say about it, but I want to say too that the movie, which is I don't know if there was more than one movie, but I, I remember seeing the movie with with like Oprah Winfrey. I did not like that movie. I'm sorry, but it, it the portrayal because it made it, it made Henrietta Lacks out to be just this crazy person. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I felt like that. Yeah, the I, movie. I didn't watch it. Yeah, I watched. I couldn't. I couldn't make it through the whole thing. It was like so much of it because apparently she did suffer from some mental health issues. It maybe may even um, some substance abuse issues. I can't recall because it's been a few years. But I was like, this movie isn't about like her being exploited this movie is about you know is about her like her just being her being mentally unwell you know so it was mm -hmm. just high drama for like nothing i don't know it was yeah. not a good payoff for me so it like missed the point you know missed the point as far right. as like explaining and it's like did we have to make it into a drama as opposed to a powerful like i mean i think i would have heard like a powerful documentary or um you know, like, I mean, there's just some things that just don't translate well to filmmaking, yes. um, but maybe documentary and illustrating, like, how people profited off of the suffering of people to, like, really highlight what is it, what is the cost or what is what has been the profit of the unpaid labor and also un, 
unpaid harvesting of, of black bodies and experimentation to really kind of bring that home. Um, so yeah, just, you know, so it wasn't on my big, on my list of things to watch. Yeah. I mean, I think I, the book is powerful and, you know, yes, the book is powerful. you to open up a book. There are also a few other there's and I'm going to I'm I don't I'm I'm not going to mention them here because I, I actually completely dropped the ball on this one. There are a few books about medical apartheid that are written by black women. There are um, some great books about women in the medical industry, black women, in the medical industry and in STEM, which I'm going to um, probably do a TikTok on so that people can see um, see what that's about um, before we we move on to uh to foundation i wanted to mention that i have a paper coming out in a japanese community um journal it's a community journal of environmental environmentalism and i was i was notified a couple of days ago at like 4 30 in the morning and i got a string of texts of congratulations i was basking i was basking in the in the in the glory i'm not and i'm not mentioning it here because I want to like up myself. I mean, not really, but I wanted to mention it because it is scientific and I want to think, I want people to understand the importance of community ex, you know, community intellectual pursuits. Yes. There are people who have spent their entire lives studying a specific thing. And those people are dedicated and they're committed and they know exactly, they know what they're doing. Most of them, but that does, that should not mean that you should automatically exclude yourself from doing things on your own, because that's what I did. And I'm not saying that I'm a master. I'm not saying any of that stuff at this. But several years ago, I began researching the idea of metabolic systems for a, for abating climate change. And I got the idea from a book that was called Aurora, which was written by Kim Stanley Robinson, which these people lived on a generation ship. And they had to have a metabolic ring where there was zero waste. Everything got recycled. And I was like, you know, we talk about that in science fiction, but how are we actually doing it? And so this project that I had had four parts, and one of the parts was biodesalinization and biodeacidification of water. And the reason why I did that part is because when within 10 years, climate change will produce 255 million climate refugees within the next 10 years. That's 255. Mm. It's like the, that's like the, a population like almost the size of the United States. It's a big population, okay? Yeah. But one of, one of the major things that we're going to face is the absence of water. Oddly, the U.S. is not really one of those countries. We, this country is literally sitting on a giant underground river, right? We, don't, we haven't even accessed that water yet. But what people don't realize is that sea levels rise doesn't just deprive us of land because what we see as sea levels rise is only part of the equation the rest of it's happening beneath the soil so what's happening is that yeah. as we watch sea levels rise underneath us seawater is beginning to desalinate our soil even before we see it and it salinates our rivers and our waterways which are major sources of food for most of us and water and so i i begin to focus on ways that since there is very little political will to change how we can mitigate those impacts on communities on a community level and so I built a, I built a, a biodesalinator slash deacidifier. The results were not what you would call miracle level, but they were um, what you would call net positive. So um, using 
a, a fisheries tank in an abandoned gymnasium <laughs> I, where I slept for, where I slept for like two weeks, right? It was really uncomfortable because I had to make sure that the, the algae samples weren't being contaminated, but because um, it was exposed to the elements. But I basically <laughs> used I, I, I used seawater essentially and I desalinated it, you know, measurably. It wasn't enough that you necessarily want to drink it, but it was like, you know, I, I use filter feeders and other stuff anyway. So this Amazing. organization. This I mean, I, this, I, I, I want to, so you were able to, to like do this experiment. I mean, every time I talk to you, it's like, there's just something new. I'm like, wow, you did that too. So that's, that's, I, I, I didn't do it alone. I had like, <laughs> I had like six people helping me, like six people around the world. We were we, six people around the country were replicating. We were all replicating the experiments. Right. So mm -hmm. as part of this metabolic system, we were all, you know, doing soldier fly composting. We were all doing, um, you know, biogas digesters because we, we wanted to compare each other's results. And all of those elements, like I said, there's four elements are designed to work in conjunction with one another to generate power at dramatically reduced, you know, like 90% carbon reduction to deacidify water. I mean, it, that's, that was the point. I mean, we got the idea from spawning mm -hmm. pools because we were like, how do we purify water? And I was like, we can use algae and we can create algae pools that will like take feces and stuff out of our water. And which is actually a fairly well-known method, but the biodesalinization one hasn't been done on an academic level. And so it, it, it there's mm -hmm. no, there's not a lot of research on it. And I was like, well, let's try it. So I did, <laughs> and I didn't just use algae. I actually used my, used mycelium also. So mm -hmm. I used like a three yeah, phase makes... desalinator. And I was like, if I can, if I can establish that this is, this is usable, then maybe somebody who's smarter and has better specified specific knowledge of these systems will come in and take and pick it up and go, yes, let's do this. So anyway, so it's a, it's a community journal. I'm, I'm just as happy with that. My goal is not to be Mr. Published. Mm -hmm. You know, they approached me and I was like, yeah, man, let's run with it. And, and we're, That's you know, they, they, were, they were like, we can't use all the research because there's too much of it, but we want to use, we want to talk about biodesalinization, obviously because they're an island nation, right? It's going to be important to them to have access to, to clean water in the future. So, so, um, so I, as a, from a science perspective, I wanted to shoot that in there. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just really glad that you're doing it. and like I said I mean it's there's always like more for us to continue to talk about I mean one it's like the the um the the refugees like the displaced people from climate change and so this is going to be our next big crisis like this is already a crisis many of our economic refugees are coming from um they're being driven by globalization, right? Like where it's like the conditions that um, of our demand, our consumerism in, in the global North is driving kind of policies in their school, like whether it's like, like not being able to have free schooling, but also authoritarian regimes to extract labor, um, you know, the disparities that we're actually causing through exploiting the global South and then on top of that, it's subsistence farming that's impossible in many places. And before, before we had modern borders, that people were able to be pastoral nomads and relocate. So we're seeing a lot of conflict in places like in the Sahel, like within, and you know, this is what actually was driving a lot of the conflict in Darfur um, in the early 2000s 
were the conflicts between the more sedentary populations and the nomadic, the pastoral nomads who are being driven in different, you know, like it's like the, yes. the tensions in farming. And then, you know, like these are like identities that transcend borders, but those, those conflicts have, you know, existed for centuries, but yet people would be able to relocate easily, but now they need passports. Now people aren't able to migrate um, as freely or move as freely. And um, I think it's very important for us to think about the impact that we're causing, right, with climate change in the global north, how that's in, impacting the global south, and that if we don't get our act together, right, not only will, like, will that drive even further destabilization of countries and economies, but it will, we are also jeopardizing our own resources that we're just like, yeah, we're, we're still holding off on that while we exploit, you know, oil and gas right. and, you know, and mining and doing all these kind of really toxic things. So, so, I mean, you could kind of see these themes, so we could bring it back to foundation, right? You know, you could see these thing, kind of themes in um, whether it's the outer rim, the exploitation of like resources. I mean, I'm kind of getting a hint around that with like um and the tensions between empire and dominion um but i'm i'm you know and the resources and and like even like the use of the pigments um which i'm just like okay so there was you know but it's like it, you know the paint and the pigments and but i'm i'm not I'm, I'm still trying to understand the kind of the global system that exists because it just seems like um what is the main planet is that trantor the main planet trantor, looks, yeah. like required yeah, transport requires a lot of resources to build that, like all those superstructures. And I'm not quite understanding the economy to build the super. I mean, it's almost like this planetary uh, structure that exists and how that's driving. Um, <laughs> like, you know, no, this, I'm not laughing at you. This, I, like, I, I, galactic... <laughs> sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go I'm ahead. sorry. I, I, I've been trying to get this word into the podcast for like three weeks, but I keep forgetting to mention it. It's called an ecumenopolis and it's a planet city. That's mm. it's a city. It's basically just a planet. That's like, you know, that's a city. It's, it's, it's a continuous city. And in many cases, the ecumenopolis is built upon not only older structures, but it's built over the planet itself. Right. If I don't know if you, we, if you remember from Andor when uh, that one, uh, uh, double agent officer took, I forget who it was, that one scientist, and they went to a tour and there was just like this tree just coming out of the ground and they were like, this is the very top of this tree, which is like this big, it's, you know, but it grows all the way down to the soil, except that there's hundreds of levels of city between, like you you can't touch grass, right, on an ecumenopolis. You're, you're yeah. living in a <laughs> city perpetually. can't get grounded. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think to, to answer your question, though, I, I, I my, my, my assumption, because so much of this is modeled on on what looks like Roman, like Greco and Roman, like, you know, um, you know, civilization. My assumption is that that they pacify these these systems and then they extract the resources. And so it's probably not all that different than how the, the United States operates today. Right. Probably in a more obvious, a more obvious imperial, not neo imperial system. So. That would be my assumption. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely interested in like transport, how they're transporting all these um, materials. So, so there's there's that. I mean, I I I would love to see the kind of kind of world building and logic that it's in the screenwriter's room. Like, what does their story bible look like? I'm yeah, you know, I'm curious about that too because I I feel like this season they really are kind of. I feel like they're they're dropping the ball a little bit. There's a lot of filler this episode, you know, this this season so far. But I wanted to hit upon something that is it bugs me. It bugs me so much. I can't tell you how much it bugs me. But there's this 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 moment in the in the beginning. Did I did I blow past the the beats? Do I need to do the beats? Yeah, or we, we just, just we didn't even go into the beats. We are. I mean, are we going to go through the beats? Or are we just we don't have of... to. Just, we don't have to. I mean, it's just like the so there's this this scene. Is most so I just want to say most of it was filler, and they talked about the story between Dominion and Day, but mostly it was about Dominion trying to get information about whether or not Day had her family killed. Then there was the mm-hmm. Bell Rios part of the story, where Bell Rios was sent to uh, Suena to to find out if there is these priests operating, pretending they were magic, and then there was the Hober Mallow storyline, where the priests get Hober Mallow back to Terminus into the vault, where they talk to Harry. And that's well, that's pretty much the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, but this thing that this thing that bugs me, which is in the very beginning, um, Dominion's handmaiden—I forget what her name is—her adjutant says, "Empire turns everyone into a courtesan, right?" And the thing is, is that it, that that statement struck a nerve with me because this is what bugs me the most about what we see in modern empire and modern cultural hegemony is so many people rail against it. So many people talk about resisting it. So many people talk about fighting it. But there are ways that you can still succumb to empire that make all of your other efforts completely useless. And that's when you give yourself to it, right? When you constantly consume and patronize their that, that hegemony. When you and, and, and even physically giving yourselves to it. Right, giving yourselves to your not just your labor, but your physical bodies, your affection. It's you're still co-signing it when you do that. You are still co-signing it when you are saying, "I will take an average this over an exceptional that." That is absolutely. It's it's it it is part of these narratives that have been spun over the last 150 years by Western hegemonies and the rise of like this the violence of nation states. They're designed to put that in your mind. They're designed to put this idea that an average imperial is superior to an exceptional, you know, a colonial, uh, you know, subject, quote unquote. And that aggravates me. It's like I, I love this really average and crappy music because it came from the imperial core. I love this really average and, you know, you know what I mean, <laughs> this really average and crappy TV show because it came from the imperial core. And honestly, I love this really average person because they came from the imperial core. Sorry, that aggravates. Or even like, what if it's like not like the but like below average? You're like, oh, here's a subpar thing that's just like held up as like the model, um, of right. like the, the, you know, yes. The, so yes. yeah, I mean, and so we're we're really seeing that it's like as opposed to being. I mean, it's it, it there is, I guess for me, it's also like in the rebellion of that right or the rejection of that. It also serves as like the like in the pressure cooker, it's, it's like a release valve for it. So even in, in the resistance actually allows for it to continue. Um, yes. And so that's the thing that is kind of, that's definitely unnerving that, um, 
you know, and I, and I don't want to necessarily be nihilistic in it. Right. It's like, as far as like, in, in thinking about resistance or, or how, um, you know, like what is our role in, you know, in, in the system as we're kind of upholding that. I mean, for example, like nonprofit system is really like that pressure valve when, when, um, government things that government can't do to protect you from you know it's like oh yeah we have like a, a charity on housing and it's like well because they've made where housing is unaffordable like if we actually fix that then there would be housing for everybody so you know those are the kind of things that we're kind of seeing um but i want to go into like the kind of critiques of it you know like i feel like there's um there's a lot of dynamics there. Um, sometimes like in some of the, the little bit of the icky writing, a little bit of icky casting <laughs> choices, right? right. Um, that come out in the beats of the story. So um, you have um, women of color as, as in these like very strange roles and so then it starts out with, you know, here's like a ruler and she's supposed to be like the weakest of her family. Um, and this is like the first time hearing that. Yes. Um, yes. And so that kind of bothered me. So it's like, you know, when you really think about it, there is the, the narrative trope around the tragic mulatto. Um, I was feeling that in this episode. I'm sorry. I'm like... trying not to, I was, I'm trying not to laugh because it's a little, it's a little funny. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, tragic. I mean, they they were playing that up, you know. They did. They did. You know, I, I, no, beautiful I also, tragic mulatto. Yes. Go ahead, please. The sorry. Asian dragon lady. Uh, both are using their sexuality to get something. That's kind of icky writing there. Um, you know, they could have done better with more nuance, right? You know. Um, and more just com and... more competency more competency around state statecraft and tradecraft, right? They could have achieved this, achieved mm -hmm. the same objectives through making two, these two women of color just competent. Yeah, like why can they please be like good chess players? Like three three dimensional chess, you know, martial arts kind of thing where they actually showed like, hey, my value is strategic, but it's like bed mates, and it's like. Really, you know, you could get what you want, anything that you want, and when it all comes down to it, it's just like, you know, like however yes. long that it takes, like maybe an hour session, and it's that's gonna change your whole <laughs> empire. No, you know, like they couldn't clone or find a double, like with much more, you know, exotic skills set. So it's like a I just, I'm just not, you know, so I just felt like that was some weak writing, but also just not thinking about, hey, we do have the trope of the dragon lady, very clear, right? There is, you know, you could read Boggle's work on, you know, black tropes in like Holly, like in Hollywood and racial tropes. The tragic mulatto is like always that classic, classic trope that's existed since, I mean, since the last of the Mohicans. The yes. first American novel. James so you're getting Cooper, that, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you know, because he had the, you know, the the mixed race character who eventually dies, you know, but it's like, you know, she's not fitting in anywhere. Her whole family has been killed. Yeah, like, you know, but yeah, and you know, and then you're feeling kind of wait, because I mean she fits both this 
the aesthetic, but she's also very exotic, you know, like at the same time. And, and so, you know, but she's using her courtesan wiles, which that's also was the thing. It's like, it's always like the hypersexual black woman and, but like the Asian mm -hmm. woman who's unabashed about, like, I was just like, no, why, why are we doing this today? Well, the demure oh, Asian woman, right, today. who is like in, in public, who is that, that, this, that trope anyway, who is this way, mm -hmm. but, but then he's like, oh, but we had, I remember joyous copulation. And I was like, ugh, man, I, I, I rolled so hard. But I wanted to mention one part that I, I, I really didn't want to gloss over, which was the idea of, of memory erasure, right? So they erase the memories mm -hmm. of these sexual encounters they have with these people, which there's, there's got to there's got to be some issue around like consent and like retroactive consent in there. I can't quite get my mind around it, but the idea that they're erasing these people's memories is really gross, right? Because literally anything could have happened, right? In in those sexual encounters, yeah. and they just erased it. But then they keep recordings of it, which is also weird. So the the thing that that bugged me about it was that her that that the minions, um, uh, you know, aide said that she she got a lot of political clout out of having sex with day back in the day and i was like oh, man like i can see how that would be the case but did you have to write that into this you know what i mean like yeah they didn't have it to was, write it, that into the script it was really it was just icky all around do you know what i mean it just was gross yeah i mean i i don't i just felt like it was it's going into this 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 area that is um weird mutual fetishization yeah, like it yeah yeah i mean well it's too like it's like it, it is like you know it's fetishizing the women of color for sure and then you know like one she's supposed to be the the mother right of this new empire um so it's like her womb is for sale but yet she's thinking yeah the person i'm supposed to marry like wiped out my family and uh yeah so so that and you know i mean i'm the not only, sure where that's going <laughs> like, the I'm only way like, to salvage that is I'm... if she was like at the end of that story arc she was like dude i totally wiped out my own family i wiped out my own family so that i could then blame you for it and then you need me you know what i mean like if she was like but then she still could have done that without without all the hypersexualization. so mm -hmm. but so I want there's, there's a topic in here that I, I want to talk about, but I first have to admit, this is me, Jay Austin Yoshino, on air, admitting to you <laughs> that you were indeed correct. You were 100% correct about what a piece of hot garbage Bell Rios is. Because we talked about pinkwashing. We talked about using the fact that he is, you know, he's gay, he has a husband. We, we talked to them about that, using that element to sort of pinkwash his career, his his military career, you know, his career essentially, presumably, you know, oppressing and, and pacifying planets. So, and I was like, yeah, and I, I agreed with you, but I wasn't as vociferous as you. And I was like, yeah, but I thought it was pretty cool because they at least did a good job with the nuance. What they did was they used a lot of really good nuance and good writing to pinkwash because... Mm -hmm. My man, first of all, can I just tell you how completely insane it was for him to take his husband on a mission? Yeah. To Sawena. Like, why are you taking your husband, dude? You know, also, why are you going? Why don't, why don't you, you're the supremus of the fleet. 
Okay, you're basically like an admiral. You you got a whole division, S3 intelligence of operatives who can do this junk for you, right? And I know, yeah, that they wanted more screen time for the actor, whatever, blah, 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 but it still didn't really make that much sense. But then they get into a conflict with some of the locals, and he takes pleasure in murdering them. <laughs> he was like, yeah, before, last episode, he was this man of the people, right? Free all the prisoners, right? And now he's like, laughing and shooting people he, he punches this black woman in the face what the hell yeah please i would crazy. love your take on this. i mean i shouldn't say crazy. that was ableist oh oh yeah like the dynamic of the pristine like i mean these are like the ultimate like white gay couple gentrifiers coming into like oakland and like you know like using force to like run roughshod over over the neighbors you know like i mean it was just like they just like really enjoyed that you know and and so it's um you know and they knew like they could win like they knew like their their skills like these these folks like they may be a little bit rough around the edges but like if but i mean well, well one like you know like an admiral would never be like like it would have been boring screen time for them to do what what um what was in the in the novel, which is just talk about the strategy, you know, like that's all they would do in the in right. the novel. But instead, it's like to show this action scene of of his brutality, which is like there's no way like they would go on the spy mission for one informant who was living well compared to like everybody else super suffering. I mean, that spot was nice. It like was. I was like, I could live there. I was <laughs> yes. like. Oh my God, like that is the ultimate pad. Um, and everybody else was just struggling, right. you know, like they all had terrible to like, cause I mean, when you have dental issues, like that is like a super painful. So they're just sitting there struggling. Right. And you know, the old man's like, you know what? I'd rather die than just be, even then, like he was just like, just, just kill me now. Um, so I don't really understand that dynamic that threw me off. Like, I was like, what? Like, they could just, you know, so he was the informant. But, like, you know, through all the disparities, like, he was living swell. And um, had books. And then everybody else is, yeah, and he had And um, he had the Bhagavad Gita. Did he have the Bhagavad Gita? Yes, he had the Bhagavad Gita. I wanted to mention that. I, which, yeah. I, was like, I, I can't hey. ignore the confluence, right? Oppenheimer. Right, Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. Like this guy has. I'm trying to understand Westerners' obsession with that book because it's, it doesn't say what they think it says. <laughs> right? They think that it's a justification for abject violence in warfare. Right? In the case of Oppenheimer, no. right? I'm become death. You know, I am. You know, I'm become death. The story of worlds, and then also Goebbels. Right. Goebbels carried a copy in his pocket. Right. If you look at all of the Nazi propaganda oh. in the 40s, it all looks very similar to the illustrations of those early editions, uh, the tw early 20th century editions of the Bhagavad Gita. So they're, they're taking it out of its original spiritual and philosophical context. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it also says something about to me, that was like a jab at Bel Rios. Right. Because mm -hmm. Bel Rios is the emperor in this instance, and his husband is the charioteer. And they're debating the the rationale of war. Meanwhile, Bel Rios is punching black women out and and having a good old time. 
Yeah, yeah, that's just like, you know, I mean, but even in that, you know, so as we kind of talk about like the violence and, and, the, and both the sexual violence and, and, the, and the stuff of black women and, um, but there's no way like somebody of his rank would be doing that dirty work, you know, like that he was just like in prison doing that. I mean, I, I, so that was just terrible writing. I mean, I just, I'm just like, that's with some BS there. Um, you know, we're not in Star Trek, you know, like the captain of the ship would never just like beam down and go like, you know, because then what, like you get rid of the captain, how are they going to even know what to do next? How are they right. going to know, like, this is like this person that has this high strategy and deep understanding. So they, they would have had like some foot soldiers, people that they would have seen as expendable, right? But like highly trained and possibly expendable people get that information and they, they couldn't even beam the guy up. He was the informant. And then, you know, like it was just sort of right. like, so the informant was, but that's also the other thing that I thought was crappy writing. Typically like an informant is someone who is compromised um, legally in that status. Like they're not just living swell and just giving information. Like they've been so compromised that they have to get in it. And that the, when they've been coerced into becoming an informant, it's because like they're um, and they're like, yeah, we'll we'll actually we'll let you like we'll let these other people know. So you'll die. So it's like there is a lot of a lot more informants have a status where they're like either like not having enough money or they may give a little bit. And then there's a lot of threat of further violence or exposure to that. So they're fully like in bed, like drawn in to that process. So it's like. You know, that's so I was I was just kind of like, so the, how is the informant who lives separate from the people know all the things like it would have been like maybe somebody in the crowd. So. So, yeah, I just I was like, I think it was can, just can like just, they were trying to build out the world. Can I just say <laughs> this part? Because because they're never I mean, like, I know that that world is going to be kind of important at some point, because apparently they're trying to bring that world into the terminus, into the foundation. But. This is the part that really got that really got me because he was like, I've been sending messages for years and years, but nobody answered. And I'm like, bro, you could have just sent all these video feeds to them. They didn't need to come down here. Like if you're sending messages for years, they're like, show us what you have. And then he turns on the projector and he's like, here is this priest and here's what they did. And and I'm like, dude, you could have just sent that. He, they didn't need to set eyes on you. They could they didn't need to compromise your cover. They didn't need to do anything. Like, so like the whole thing was kind of like that scene where where John Boyega and Rosemarie Tran leave leave the battleship to go on this side adventure in that Star Wars movie like it was just pointless <laughs> right like i was just like wow that was you just wasted like half. that's what i mean by filler sorry yeah so it's like trying to do world building but without like yeah cuz i was just like so all that that they were getting this thing that there were these priests but that was like a secret when everybody saw that right Exactly. But I mean, I get, yeah, like they were anti-empire, but there could have been like way cooler ways to do that. But I don't know. I mean, who am I to say? So we'll just let it. I can tell you for, kind for of certain that intelligence does not operate <laughs> that way. Um, okay, so here. Okay, so let's let's talk about. This is the part that like, you know, is going to aggravate me the most. We got to talk about it. So taking the, the two priests, Brother Constant and the other guy whose name I forget, take Hober Mallow into the vault to meet Harry. And there was so much in this that was problematic. I don't even know what to say. 
But I want to start <laughs> off by saying, and this is this is somewhere else where the writing is weak. Brother Constant as a character and the the other priest, the the, the old curmudgeonly drunk, and the young the young pious nymph is not working. It's not working at all. It, it, as 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 archetypes, it makes the characters not only it doesn't help flesh the characters out, it makes me dislike them. Because, mm-hmm. do, do you know what I mean? It's like, the way that, it, it's like their their attributes are painted onto them. They don't, they're not living them. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I believe that Salvor Hardin, as an example in the previous season, I believe that she was a sexual being, but, in, and not, and not hypersexualized, but I believe that she was a sexual being because she loved a person who she shared, she occasionally shared a bed with, and they showed that. Here, it's like, mm-hmm. he drinks, right? The main character, that, that one priest drinks, but it doesn't really affect the story, right? He still seems to be lucid and sober enough, more or less, to do his job. And then she's like, yeah. kind of like a, her, his, you know, his junior priest, but she's kind of a hornball that just kind of travels with him, right? And, I'm, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, it, it, do you know what I mean? Like, it didn't, it just yeah. doesn't, it's not believable. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, like, I mean, she's definitely not playing that up or just like as, as a, but, you know, those are the kind of tropes as, as you have, like somebody in a, in a priesthood or like the monk that's like young, but kind of, you know, still kind of like, still kind of horny or, you know, corruptible. Like if there's somebody that is, um, you know, tempting, you know, like they'd be like, yeah, I could do this. But I mean, it's like, it's her coming on to him, um, which, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. They don't look like a good couple. They don't have chemistry. The close talking didn't really do anything. And those contacts are just really terrible. Oh God, the contacts are awful. They're so awful. And they can't be comfortable. But also their their whole vibe, (laughs) her and Hobermala's whole vibe was, Oh, so I just discovered that you were kind of a hornball, like you were really promiscuous, and I was kind of hoping to add my notch to your belt. Like that was their combo. Yeah. Which is the craziest. There was like, they they spent two or three episodes <laughs> making her out to be this kind of sexualized religious nymph kind of archetype, and then in that one moment, they totally stripped all of her sexual agency from her. Right? They were like. Oh yeah, she's gonna like swoon over this guy, even though he's got this. Do you know what I mean? Even though he's really promiscuous, it was so bizarre. Like I was like, that did not. Yeah, like it was just like just like another notch, and it's just like, like even then, like how she approached it was like very awkward in the middle of the thing. You know, like they're like on the middle of the. Like and then why would he care that she was kind of sad? Like if he just had all you know, and he's like, okay, maybe the tenth. I don't like to be. Right. But it was just kind of like what you know like but then why does she have to be virginal to, you know what i'm saying right. like they're just like really obsessed with that so, right so yeah whoever wrote that that beat they suck um i would have been like sorry, look just we, I, that, just like... harry didn't say i had to leave right now we got a ship sitting right here i'm gonna give my man brother what's his face this <laughs> bottle of rum and we can go into the you know and and, and we, can, we can go into the ship and like do we gotta like it was so busy. It, like, and it was, I, I know that they did that to sort of 
established this kind of sense of longing that they, maybe they would be reunified, that they would become a thing, but it didn't work yeah, for me. I was like, like, dude, it was gross. Like, it no. was gross. I mean, even then, like, you know, but even like a young person, like they would be like, I just want to be another notch. Maybe it'd be like your experience, these other blokes, like they, they just are going to be really rough. I want to have this amazing experience, but like, and you got all these tricks. So what, what kind of tricks you got? You know, maybe she could be like, either she could be kind of fun or she could right, be like, right. okay, I want to make sure it's like meaningful. Right. Like you're yes. over Mallow, the, the thing called you. So I want to be, you know, something about you is going to be special. And it's like, no, like none of this, no mysticism right. to it. There's no, like maybe a lore, but this is the whole thing where I think it's like, you know, and I'm just going to, you know, like, I mean, maybe, like, I mean, I went to the grad, I went to grad school in the early 2000s. So, you know, Foucault, you know, really talking about sexuality and, and like how it's been made so explicit, like how, like, you know, there was like a lot of talk around, like how we kind of reduce the, the mystery of it, you know, like to be a notch or recopulated, you know, like, I mean, there's just like a lot more to certain acts and just you're just copulating like i mean they could have used a different word yes that was the like, grossest word know, like ever. This, ever but it's just like but even like maybe there's like by this time like we're like how far are they in the future maybe there's some mental things that are happening with telepathy of merging of ideas and so that are just more pleasurable that are actually part of that like there's more to sex than just you know the act itself it's like there is like the vibe like and they're all like filthy like i'm just like she's been in the same dirty outfit like this is the most unsexy scene i have ever seen thumbs down it, it, yeah i would never want to see them get down ever 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 in that dirty shit so, uh, ever yeah. yes <laughs> So as a, as a Muslim, like, but I mean, I wouldn't want to see that written. I wouldn't want to see that described. I would just be like, you know, they'd have to like surprise me like Game of Thrones. You'd be like, oh, I want to see that, you know, like, so it's just like, right. No, like it would like, right. So the cat th that wasn't even the most the problematic part, most problematic part of that, of that <laughs> episode, because, because Harry Harry Seldon says he speaks about religion as though it were a, oh, yeah. a religious phase. He says, oh, I see you're in a religious phase. And rather than do anything to 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 negate it, he he feeds it. He says, you know, um, he speaks about it as though it were a foregone conclusion, which I find really bizarre when you consider because it does that does occur in the books. But I found it bizarre considering that Asimov was an atheist. Right. He says that. um that the you know you're in a religious phase, but then when he's talking to Homer Mallow later on, he says that it's a necessary element, right? It's it, all great civilizations go through a religious phase before, uh, bef you know, before they and, and many of them never escaped that phase. And you know, mm -hmm. the United States is a classic example of that, by the way, of of an empire that never that never escapes a religious phase. But if, I find it strange mm -hmm. that that there were no warnings. In other words, he didn't say, Hey, you yeah. know what, by the way, it would be a really bad idea if you deify me or you deify the concept of psychohistory and science. He didn't do that. He fed yeah. it. And it was in. Yeah. It, it felt very hypocritical because 
it's like, again, with empires, do what I say, not what I do. Do what I do, not what I say. Or do what I say, not what I do. Sorry. Like, it's that had that vibe to it. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it was like, and then using the religious language, right, for, for that. Um, and then what happens in the, um, in the, um, in the vault. So, like, in the vault, like, which can be, like, the creation of these particular, you know, moving of molecules and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just really struggling with that. Like, the vault, like the the radiant and then how does this fit outside of things that are created in the galactic empire like are is the are these technologies existing outside of this yeah, I thought that was strange too why aren't we solving yeah like so so there's that inconsistency of it but like in this space he can act like a god but then, and then outside of that, you know, like people are kind of like sitting there, you know, struggling and trying to get by, but there's like all this amazing food. So I'm just like, what the heck is going on? I'm so confused. It was also inconsistent oh. with his stated goals, right? Which is this idea of, of yeah. you know, the more you think about it, the more you, and they, they did caution last episode. They talked about how there was this potential for foundation to become another empire, but it, it, it doesn't seem like that the Selden consciousness is trying terribly hard to prevent that. It seems like he's feeding it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, and I want to sort of remind people that that what they're, what they're trying to, uh, to avert is another dark ages. Right. That's going to,